That was a pleasant noise. Good morning. Well, hey, I get to start uh, a new series called The Messengers. And uh, we're starting that today. We're going to go through an overview of the book of Acts over the next couple of weeks. And we started this year with the Embracing Identity series, if you were with us back in January, where we preached through our core values and identified three pillars on which we want to build this church, large gatherings, groups, and missions. And so as we go through this book of Acts overview, our aim is to embrace our identity through seeing the values of the first church. What is relevant to us today as the church? And for you parents of elementary kids, Kid City is actually going through the same message. So you can share in the knowledge that you're all gaining at home uh, so I think that's an important connection to be made. So I want you to know that. They're also going through the Messenger series along with us. So today is all about the messengers in the book of Acts. And there was, there was lots of messengers uh, throughout history. Uh, Pheidippides, he's the guy that ran the first marathon. He didn't know he was running the first marathon. He ran from Marathon Greece to Athens to deliver the message of victory. Through the years, we've had things like carrier pigeons, the Pony Express, Paul Revere. Those of us who grew up in the 80s enjoyed the speedy delivery services of Mr. McFeely. <laughs> and my personal favorite, Cliff Clavin. But before we look at the messengers in the book of Acts and how God used the people there in the first century to spread his gospel, let's quickly take a look back at the gospel of Matthew to clarify what the message is. So the message we can see in Matthew 16, Peter professes Jesus as the Messiah. And let's take a look at that, that small passage there. Matthew 16, 15 through 18, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah. That's the important piece there. But this passage can be misunderstood because Jesus has some wordplay in here because Peter's name means rock. And Jesus talks about the rock that he's going to build the church upon. Peter is not that rock because in the Greek, Peter's name is Petros, which means small stone. You don't build a foundation with small stones. And the word for rock here, it's Petra. So he's got a, a word play here, and Petra means foundational rock. What is that foundational rock? It's, it's the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. It's Peter's confession of who Jesus is. On that foundation, Jesus is going to build his church. So that is the, the, the message that the messengers need to carry. That, and the very, that very Messiah commissioned his disciples. Later on in Matthew's gospel, it records the commission like this in Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we have the foundational message 
that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Christ. And we have a directive from Jesus to go make disciples with that message. And so now we're gonna take a look at the book of Acts. So let's take a look at book of Acts chapter one. And this is Luke's words. He's the gospel writer. He, right off in the book of Acts, we see right away that he mentions a previous writing. That'd be, he's referring to his gospel. So Acts chapter one, let's start with the first 14 verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and at the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they, where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now I think, I think some of this scene is rather comical because the disciples are standing watching Jesus, probably straining their eyes to see Jesus to the very last moment. Like how we might, I lost a kite one time when I was you know, a kid and all I could do is just stare and look up. And you're like, you're just left there wanting what's leaving you and you just strain your eyes to see just the very last bit. And then these angels come and say, guys, why are you just standing there looking up? And as if I were the disciple, I'd be like, well, Jesus literally just levitated. What do you think? Why else would I be looking up? What am I supposed to do? But then you can almost see or hear the, the, the gears in the disciples' brains like snapping back into, into motion. Oh, right, 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 right. Okay, Jesus, Jesus did say, what did he say what to do? Okay, wait in Jerusalem until he sends the Holy Spirit, whatever that means, and then we're supposed to be messengers or something. Okay, all right, so let's go back to Jerusalem. And so they go back to Jerusalem, they're, they're, they're grouped up and they're praying. And in, in, in verse eight, we see a verse directly tied to the Great Commission. Remember in Matthew's record, we have the directive to the disciples to go make disciples. But in Acts 1.8, we see a descriptive Direction. Go make disciples, in verse 8, in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, 
into the ends of the earth. So for those of us who aren't um, great, don't have a great handle on the Israeli geography, remember Jerusalem is a city in Israel. Judea and Samaria are provinces of, of Israel. Jerusalem is in Judea. And Jesus was saying, take my message throughout the city of Jerusalem and beyond. Spread it out throughout Jerusalem, Judea. Samaria is just north of Judea. I think it's interesting that he only mentions Judea and Samaria, and then he moves on to the rest of the earth. He doesn't mention Galilee. Israel was split into three provinces, and he doesn't mention Galilee. I don't think that was a a, a point to not mention Galilee. I think he pointedly mentioned Samaria. So go throughout Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. But he also mentions Samaria. Why? Remember, the Samaritan Jews were not your top notch. They, They did not hold the status that the Judea Jews had. Remember the good Samaritan? There was a point to that story. The Judean Jews did not care for the Jews in Samaria. And so I think Jesus was saying, spread the gospel from where you are throughout the ends of the earth, even to the people that you don't really care for. I think there was a a pointed message there. Now, let's fast forward to Acts chapter two and see the reaction post-Holy Spirit. So Acts chapter two, one through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in in our own languages the mighty works of God. And all were amazed, perplexed, saying to one another, "What, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're just filled with new wine. Now, Peter then gets up, he gets the attention of the crowd and explains that the disciples aren't drunk because it's only 9 a.m. And then he goes to give this incredible speech explaining Old Testament prophecy, who Jesus is, and what they all did to him. And it was quite effective, obviously, because this cut them deeply to the heart and Peter then led them to repentance. I just want to take a moment and appreciate Peter here in this moment of the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter. Because Peter would have had the basic knowledge of the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament. And just like any good Jewish boy, he would have memorized those books. But he wasn't chosen by a Jewish rabbi to continue his studies, which means he probably wasn't the best student, which is why he became a fisherman. But then Jesus got a hold of him, and now he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter wouldn't have had the knowledge 
of the Old Testament prophecies hadn't he had the Holy Spirit, hadn't he had spent time with Jesus. See the importance of that. And he wouldn't have even dressed like a teacher of the law. So I have to wonder, was anyone thinking initially, who is this guy? Who is this stinky fisherman? But apparently that doesn't matter when you speak with the authority of Jesus. Remember when we started, first started the book of Mark a few weeks ago, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, people were awed at the authority which Jesus spoke. And now Peter is speaking with that same authority. Let's jump ahead at the end of Peter's uh, sermon in verse 40, Acts 2 verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and, all things in, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." What do you think is going through the minds of the original disciples here? I mean, I would be excited out of my mind at this. I mean, can you imagine? Like, they'd be like, it's happening. I didn't even know what it was going to be, but here it is. The church has begun. Jesus is using us as messengers. The Holy Spirit has come. I didn't really know what that meant, but this is what it means. This is what it looks like to be the church. All of these memories of his teaching would have come flooding back and just the aha moments that it would be going through their heads at this moment. These original disciples were living out the beginning of their calling to be messengers for Jesus. And as we look through the rest of the book of Acts, we, we see these messengers taking their God-given mission very, very seriously. We have, we have Peter, and he continues to preach. And God later, uh, God later called him to take the gospel to non-Jews. Remember his vision of the white sheet coming down. And animals that were, were previously viewed as unclean, God says, no, 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 They're, everything that I've made is clean. And the concept there, the point there was to, the gospel is for everyone, even for the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So Peter was the first person to take uh, the gospel to non-Jews through the household of Cornelius. And Cornelius' household received the Holy Spirit. Stephen, in Acts 8, we see his, his bold speech that inevitably got him stoned to death. But that fired up the church to spread even more despite the persecution that was going on. And we, have, we can read about Philip. He was the one that ran along the uh, uh, Ethiopian chariot and heard the Ethiopian reading Isaiah. He said, hey, do you understand what you're reading? No, not really. And so he explained the words of Isaiah and brought Jesus into the letter of Isaiah, effectively spreading the gospel to Ethiopia because the Ethiopian eunuch would have gone home and surely spread what he had learned. And then, of course, we can read about Paul and all of his journeys. 
and how Paul launched into super, super missionary mode and took the gospel throughout the Mediterranean area, surely beyond the, uh, well beyond the boundaries of Israel. And it's easy to look at these disciples like, like these and put them in a category of like Bible heroes or super disciples. And, and if I'm being honest, I look through the book of Acts and I think, I can't do that. I, I can't be Paul. I can't even be Peter. I didn't walk with Jesus. And those guys are out of my league. I mean, I can't really... Special delivery. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Appreciate it. It's for Evans Heckler. All right. Well, you got the... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Huh. Hey, so special delivery. Looks like it's straight from Kids City. We are God's messengers. We are all messengers of God. That is our big idea, our BCC big idea today. God's messengers. He wasn't exactly cheerful like Mr. McFeely, was he? Appreciate it anyway. So we are God's messengers. That's our big, big idea for today. We are God's messengers. We just looked at these superhero giant disciples who were messengers for the gospel. I can't relate to those people, or it seems as though I can't relate to those people. But if we are all God's messengers, then we better figure out how we're supposed to do that. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1, I want to to read a passage from there. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That explains many of us. But God, cho- God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to, bring to nothing things that are, so that no, man being, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it, is, as it is written, let no one who boasts, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We might not feel like the most qualified disciples to be the most effective messengers, but that's not the point, or that is the point, sorry. It's, it's not about us, it's about how amazing the church people It's not about how amazing the church people can be. It's about how miraculously the Holy Spirit can move through the people of the church. To be fair, though, it is still rather difficult to compare myself to Paul or Peter or even Stephen. So let's look at the not-so-famous messengers in Acts 2. Who does the Bible not talk about specifically by name, but we can know existed and lived as messengers? At the end of Acts 2, 47, we learned that 3,000 were added to the church that day. And that is not the first mega church. This is the collection of, a, of small groups. Remember, Acts chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, they're talking about all, the, all, all of the nations of Jews that were present at Pentecost. They were from all over the area. 
they would have eventually scattered and took the gospel message with them. I want to show you what that looks like. We've got a map of Jerusalem and the surrounding area representing, uh, we have a location representing all of the different nations there at Pentecost that day. Look where they would have gone home to. Look at how these normal people, non-superhero disciples, would have gathered together in Jerusalem. It was tradition that the Jews would come together uh, in Jerusalem for seven weeks, starting at Passover, and stay the seven weeks through Pentecost, which is Acts 2. But then they would have gone home, and they would have taken the message with them. That's how the gospel spread. That's surely beyond the borders of Judea and Samaria that begins that ripple effect throughout the ends of the earth that Jesus was talking about. And it was done not by professional disciples, it was done by normal people like you and me. Now, you could still make the point that Paul spread the gospel to the Mediterranean area and he did it you know, as, a, as the super disciple that we, we often think he is, but we also read about Antioch, a very, very important uh, uh, city in, in the area, and we know from church historians, such as uh, Eusebius, a Greek historian who lived in the 300s, he records that a great number of Greeks at Antioch became uh, following the faith through hearing the gospel message from those who were scattered by the persecution of Stephen in Acts 8. Normal disciples led great numbers of Greeks in Antioch to the gospel. Antioch was a major hub for the church. Why is that? Because Christ followers like you and me were messengers in their own city. Jesus qualifies us to be messengers. In John 14, Jesus is telling his disciples that the way to the Father is through him, the Son, and that he and the Father are one. And and Jesus says these words in verses 10 through 12, chapter 14 of John, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the work, works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. All that Jesus speaks is done through the authority of the Father. With that authority, he qualifies us to be his messengers by saying we will do greater things than him. Greater things than Jesus. Now, we have to be careful with this passage because it's, it's easy to say greater as in Quality. We're talking greater as in quantity because Jesus literally spoke things into existence during the creation of the world. He died on the cross for our sins. He came back to life. We can't do those things. But when he said that we will do greater works, he's talking about us, the church, can do more with the mission that he started as a single man. The whole church working as one, multiplying disciples well beyond the capacity of what he was able to do as a single person. One man couldn't walk with every person in the way that we need to be walked with in order for us to be discipled in the way Jesus discipled his 12. 
we as the church will do more. Okay, you may be thinking, all right, you convinced me I'm supposed to be a messenger. But I took a spiritual gifts test and I don't have the gift of evangelism. So am I off the hook or what do I, I don't know what to say. Um, I'd still rather leave it to the extroverts with the evangelistic, you know, uh, abilities. How do you effectively spread the gospel? How do we effectively live as messengers? So often we think about being messengers of God and we think of evangelism and as soon as the word evangelism is mentioned, the extroverts or the introverts look down at their shoes and the extroverts want to jump up and they're already sharing, sharing Jesus with the first people they see. But let's, let's get real for a minute because if we are all messengers, then we all need to understand how to do this no matter what our personality or skill set. So I want to suggest a couple of elements, three elements that we need to consider in order to live as messengers. Relationships, experiences, and information. Being an effective messenger for God involves a balance of our relationships, experiences, and information. And pay attention to the order here because I think it's, it's important we start with relationships, and I'll tell you why. Because it's through our relationships that we can effectively share our experiences of God and information about God. So if we think about our relationships, we've mentioned many times that spiritual growth happens best in the context of relationships. Well, this includes evangelism. And that's why one of our core values here at BCC is relationships are our priority. That doesn't mean just the relationships within the church. All of our relationships, even those with people outside of the church. What better way to bring someone into the flock of, of sheep than, than through a loving relationship? Show those outside the church that you care enough about them to, to know them and be relational with them before you start teaching them what Bible verses to memorize or before you hold them accountable to biblical standards that they never agreed to follow. Think about the deliveries that you received at home. Okay, you order something on Amazon and this random delivery uh, vehicle, not even a delivery vehicle sometimes, and it's just a personal vehicle shows up. You don't know who it is. They drop the package on the door. Sometimes they ring your doorbell and then they walk away. Now, if you're like me, you hear the doorbell ring, you peek out the window and you're like, oh, okay, that's the delivery person. I'm just gonna wait here until they walk away and get back in their car and they drive away. Now it's safe for me to get the package. I just don't want... I, most of us don't want to interact with the random delivery guy. But compare that to someone that you know, someone that you have a relationship with. Maybe a friend is bringing something over to your house. You receive that messenger and that package very differently. You open the door, you smile, probably even invite the person in because you have a relationship with them. You accept the message differently depending on whether you have a relationship with the messenger or not. If, if we are to be effective messengers, we have to have relationships outside the church, but it's more than just having a relationship. It's knowing how to be intentional with those relationships in order to bring Jesus' message to them in a way that they're going to accept it. So let's look at our relationships and how they relate to experiences and information. How can we intentionally uh, how can we be intentional messengers through our relationships outside the church by using our experiences and information? 
So what am I talking about as far as experiences go? There are a few ways our experiences with God directly affect how we are messengers of the gospel. And I'm not talking about grand emotional experiences here. I'm talking about how we experience God ourselves and how those experiences affect us as Christ followers and how the world around us can experience God through us. Experiencing God is a lifelong process of belonging to him through Christ. It's being moved by the Holy Spirit and growing in the knowledge of him, being influenced by him, becoming familiar with God. We just looked at John 14 and there Jesus was saying, to know me is to know the Father. And that phrase, to know, the Greek word that we use for to know means to experience. Knowing God is so much more than head knowledge. God is to be experienced. So what does this look like in daily life? It looks like drawing close to him daily so that when we go through all the circumstances of life, we are handling them like Christ would handle them because we are allowing God's presence in our lives to accompany us through life circumstances. Now that, I think, is the essence of our core value. Devotion is our identity. We are children of God and we need to live life that way, in his presence, foundationally devoted to this identity and allow that identity to guide our actions. I'm reading a book right now called Disciple Maker's Handbook and they make an excellent point by saying Jesus was disciplined, a man of prayer who prioritized his time with his father so that he could respond to the events of the day, knowing that the father had prepared them for him. How prepared are you for what life will bring you today? Whatever life brings us, our actions will show those around us who we are. And if they know that we're professing Christians, we're showing them a little bit about who we say God is as well. Through our struggles, through a, a job loss or stress or grief or conflict, we are, are, are we experiencing God's presence in those struggles? Are we experiencing his peace? Are we experiencing his wisdom, his comfort, his love? Can others see us living differently like Jesus lived differently? If devotion is our identity, devotion to who we are because of God, then our identity should shape us and show who we, are to be, uh, who we are to the world. And by this, we are acting messengers, showing how a disciple deals with conflict, with loss, with priorities, with politics, with emotions. By experiencing God through all of our, li our, our life circumstances, we are in turn giving opportunities to those around us to experience God through us. That's a humbling thought. We have to be careful, church, the world is watching and people outside the church connect their experiences with us to the experience with God. This doesn't mean we have to be perfect. Jesus took care of that for us. But we can use our imperfection to bring glory to God. This again is where relationships are so important because when we mess up in front of someone outside the church, we have the opportunity to ask for forgiveness and explain our flaws. And at the same time, we can point to God's perfection and his grace in our life. Last week, Pastor Derek delivered a, a fantastic message on church wounds. And he said, a healthy person can effectively minister the gospel of reconciliation from their scars. 
Remember earlier this year, we learned that the Quad Cities ranks number 15 on the most post-Christian church cultures. Many of our neighbors have church wounds and their scars are still holding hurt. Share your experiences with these people, the good experiences, the bad, the ugly. God can use them all for his glory. We are his messengers, which includes helping people heal for the sake of the kingdom. We also heard last week that the church is part of God's plan for maturing us and carrying out the Great Commission. There is no plan B. We are his messengers, and how those outside the church experience us is a direct reflection of who God is to them. So be intentional with your relationships, experience God, and live your life in such a way that others can experience God through you. That leaves us with information. Information is very important, but be careful not to put this one above relationships. The Western church has, has the tendency to emphasize information downloading. Most often when we hear phrases like, we're all messengers, or we talk about the need for evangelism, we think about what words do I need to say in order to transfer the correct information to the people in order for them to be saved? What biblical information do I need to know and I need to memorize in order to accept the gospel? That's, that's the wrong approach. Information is good. Correct theology is very important. After all, uh, our first core value is scripture is our starting point. That's where we get the foundation of knowledge. But information alone doesn't make disciples. In his book, Discipleship That Fits, Bobby Harrington writes, just thinking clever thoughts does not produce disciples who are ready to go and make other disciples. We have to balance and leverage our relationships. Information passed within the relational and experiential context is far more likely to take root. Remember the example of the random delivery guy versus the friend who's bringing you something. You accept it differently. Through your sharing of information within the context of your, of your already built relationships, questions are asked, conversations happen, specific applications are made, and together we learn what it means to know and follow God. Whereas Solely information-based evangelism tends to fall on closed ears, or even worse, the evangelist is viewed as a wacko, and it actually hurts the spread of the gospel more than actually doing any good. Putting information over relationships and experiences risks creating like, Pharisee-like mindsets rather than loving and relational disciples. So there's this very particular order, relationships, experiences, and information. Now, there is foundational information that we need to communicate uh, as messengers, but none of it requires a PhD. That means all of us can know what information and know how to communicate that information. The gospel, the gospel message. If any one of you sat down and thought through, what is the gospel message? I guarantee that you'd, you'd be able to at least fumble through it, at least on your first try. Things like who was God? He's love, he's perfection, he's truth. How does God interact with us as humans? Those are, that's all foundational information that we all know. Those are things that we need to put into our conversations, adding to our experiences and our relationships with others. 
Now, you might think that you don't know enough to share proper information about God. So, to you, I have some suggestions. Open up your Bible and spend time learning about God with God. If that's too intimidating for you, then spend some time with the kids' ministry or, or your own kids. Because many of you I know who were new in your faith volunteered in the kids' ministry and you learned so much about the Bible. I went to Bible college, but then I learned more in the five years that I was a children's pastor in just teaching kids. Because if you can teach it to a child, you can teach it to an adult. And kids' ministry, they have the best resources anyway. They dumb it all down. And I actually, in preparing this sermon, I went to Taryn's office and got all of her kid books. I'm like, oh, so that's how it was broken down. I, I, I still use those things. So kids' ministry and the resources, they're awesome. Okay, what if you don't like kids? All right, forget that idea. <laughs> then, then in your small group, Talk about the information that you believe to be foundational and practice sharing it with each other as if you were in a conversation with one of your non-Christian friends. If you're not in a small group, I got another idea for you. Grab some friends you trust and practice sharing information. Think about how what we say and what we read in scripture translates to a non-Christian. If you're not in a small group, maybe you could do like a temporary uh, small group. We've got some great sermon uh, series coming up that you could say, hey, you and a few friends, you're going to gather together for the few weeks of a particular sermon series, and you're, that's, that's your goal, is to talk about how that sermon could be communicated and heard by a non-Christian. So we're going to go through the messenger series for the couple, uh, next couple of weeks, and then in June, we're going to start a three-week series in Titus. And that's going to be how we set the tone by the way we live in, in society in which God has placed us. So uh, we've got a Titus option. In July, we're going to start a sermon series called Mentoring Pairs, uh, intentionally walking with someone to help them grow. In August, we're going to uh, do a sermon called Simple Church, How Do We Live and Grow as Disciples? And then in September, we're going to kick off a 12-week series called Multiply, How Do We Actually Make Disciples? Pick one of these in the future. Make a plan. Grab some friends if you're not in a small group and say, hey, we're going to go through this sermon series. We're going to listen and we're going to talk about how this information is foundational and how it could be used in a conversation with my non-Christian friends. Use your relationships intentionally. We are all messengers. Being an effective messenger for God involves leveraging intentional relationships with others in order to share experiences and information. I want to show you that map again real quick. After Pentecost, after Pentecost, they went back home, taking the message with them. They were messengers with their households and throughout their neighborhoods, throughout their towns. Now I want to show you a map of where we live. We're at BCC in the center of this map. And all around it, listed in, in white, are towns represented in this congregation. People, you all live in these areas. So Jesus is telling you, make disciples. Go through all out Bettendorf and the Quad Cities area into the ends of the earth, being my messengers. People in Bluegrass, Coal Valley, Kelowna, East Moline, you are put there on purpose to be a messenger to the people that you live around. 20 different towns represented here in this congregation. Leave this large church gathering today. Go back home and take the gospel message with you. 
Be the messengers through, through your relationships. Share your experiences and pass on information. There's a reason we are based in Bettendorf and there is a reason you are living and working where you are. God has you where you are for a reason. Because in your area, in your neighborhood, you are his messenger. Go and make disciples throughout Bettendorf, the Quad Cities area, and to the ends of the earth. And remember, Jesus is with you. Father, we thank you so much for placing us where, where we are today. No matter the circumstances, we pray that people around us, especially those around us who, who don't belong to you just yet, would see us acting differently as messengers for you so that they would get a, a, just a, a piece of who you are, the love that you have to offer. Father, give us the words. Point out the relationships that we already have. Help us to grow closer to you so that when we interact with people outside of this church, that you would just burst out of us and overflow into their lives. Help us to be the bold messengers that you call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.